Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Engaging the Phenomenon. And uh, today we are honored to have on return guest, friend, colleague, uh, Dr. Joseph Burks or, or Joseph Burks, MD. So welcome back, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. Um, and just for everybody watching this on YouTube or listening on the podcast, I did also want to announce um, some of you might be aware of we're hosting another event in New York City. Um, and that's an inquiry into anomalous experiences and the phenomenon. This time is going to be held on December 3rd, Saturday, December 3rd, New York City. So stay tuned for uh, Engage in the Phenomenon on Twitter for details on that. Um, but uh, it's, it's great to have you back, Joe. And, and for people listening to this or watching this, we've done um, at least three or four talks before. And the links are going to be in the description so people can catch up on those discussions. Uh, but today we, we have a number of things to go over. And I want to start out with the idea of um, something, uh, a, a term you coined called prime contactees. Um, so for, for people watching and listening, can you explain uh, what the term prime contactee means and, and how you came about it? Well, the, it's easy to explain the c concept. How I, it came to me would require a detailed explanation. But in, a prime contactee is a high-level contact experiencer uh, with UFO intelligences. These individuals are primarily men that I've come across. So the one, a female, would be definitely called a prime contactee. And I can talk about someone who I'll speak of as Tracy Travis, that's not her real name. But we did field work in 1997. She had a remarkable CV when it came to her personal contact protocols. And it, yes. And I would just say as, as a female prime contactee would definitely be uh, Dorothy Isaac or Dorothy oh, sure. Isaac. Yeah, that's right. But I, I didn't work with her. So I, I, right, right. Just just for people listening, if they have absolutely. an idea of look at Dorothy Ezat, that's an, a perfect example of a prime contactee. So these uh, individuals uh, usually are approached in childhood, adolescence or early adulthood. Um, they uh, have repeated sightings of what we call unidentified aerial phenomena, flying saucers. But also, as time goes on, they develop psychic capabilities that allow for direct telepathic communication. And they have the unique characteristics that they can request a UFO sightings with others present and uh, sightings occur with multiple witnesses present to verify not only the event, but that special relationship with UFO intelligences. Uh, Christopher Bledsoe is perhaps a prime contactee, but he doesn't follow the usual pattern in as much as he was in his, I think, late 40s uh, when he uh, had a series of important encounters and turned him into a veritable UFO magnet. Uh, people use various terms, calling the UFOs down, uh, but I like to think of it as requesting a sighting uh, because that is more consistent with the power relationship between people and the intelligence behind the phenomena, they are the more active partner in the dance, if, if contact could be seen as a dance, um, and we are the more passive ones. And so um, crime contactees uh, have a special interest for people like me back in the 90s, because 
I was a working group coordinator for a CE5 initiative. I was a member of the board of directors for the Center for Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence from 1992 till I resigned in 1998. Uh, I was closely associated with the other working group coordinators. I'm the only surviving member. Uh, Wayne Peterson died. He was the working group coordinator for, for Phoenix, passed away about six, seven years ago. And the most important working group coordinator, the one who did the most to develop the protocols was Stephen Greer. And I'm talking about Sherry Adamack. She died in 1998. Um, so uh, I'm going to share with the audience uh, the the kind of contacts that I had and the way in which the non-human intelligence associated with the phenomena facilitated my involvement by connecting me with these prime contactees. And, and one of the things that I did when I was actively organizing working groups, not to any great success, but it certainly kept me busy from 1992 to 1997 when I was an emergency room physician. We had two school-aged children at home and uh, was working a lot of hours uh, all night, all-nighters along with all-night vigils uh, going out into the field, primarily in Joshua Tree National Monument, but also other locations in Southern California. So I was pretty busy. And what I found was that like in Hollywood, they say in Hollywood, it's not what you know, but who you know. In other words, if you want to get ahead as an actor, director, cinematographer, screenwriter, you got to have connections. And if you are connected to a prime contactee, a person who has an established track record of attracting the phenomena, then you hang out with them, you're going to see a lot of stuff. And the high level involvement that that individual has can be transferred to you so that you start having multiple sightings when other people are present. In other words, I saw it primarily not as a scientific investigation, but as an organizing type of tool to find the contact, prime contactees. And uh, I used to make the joke that once you join the contact underground and are involved with prime contactees, you'll never be lonely again because this phenomena will follow you home and will stay with you in one form or another for the rest of your life. Okay, so I was gonna say, is, is, the, is the proximity to a prime contactee like a residual effect? And in kind of another way is, you know, to, the term has a negative connotation nowadays because of how it's been used. But is it almost? It almost sounds like a uh, a kind of positive version of the hitchhiker effect. Well, yeah, I would say the hitchhiker effect is a negative version of how right. is transferred. <laughs> I would put it that way. Yeah, the the counterintelligence people who got um, very upset when they got involved with this subject, they you know, in Skinwalker Ranch and others, you know, we have to you know, point out, and this, uh, this is something that Grant Cameron has said, you know, these are people who are, you know, they're soldiers. They think in terms of conflict and fighting. And uh, if you, the, the, the phenomena to a great extent, and John Keel has written about this, is a kind of, what it is, it mirrors or reflects your, your stage of consciousness. Um, if you have a particular theory about the subject, the, the um, consciousness behind the phenomena the, 
the so-called aliens, will stage often in a kind of trickster way, events, contact events that reinforce your pre-existing <laughs> belief structure. So yeah. if you're involved with conflict, you know, fighting, killing, and you approach as a counterintelligence officer, um, UFO intelligences or other non-human intelligences as a potential enemy, they will reflect back on you. So it's a kind of reflective phenomenon. They, not reflective in the terms of deep thought, but more reflective in the terms of like a mirror reflecting back an image. Right. So I wanted to make that point because, you know, um, people are becoming more aware, the general public of this phenomena. And my background is in peace and social justice movements in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so, you know, I always saw this issue in the context of the potential of creating a social movement that would link contact with non-human intelligences to the possibility of creating a social movement that will link that phenomena to conceivable solutions for the, these fundamental crises. And I'm talking about war, talking about hatred, which is racism, is a, but also ethnic rivalries and religious hatreds or manifestations. And also, uh, of course, you've got the obscene disparities of wealth and power on our planet, where you have people, you know, who one tenth of one hundredth of a percent uh, are controlling more resources than half the population, not only in this country, but in all around the world. So, so we have to um, be aware that there's a much bigger picture that I'm trying to put this phenomena into. Now, some people are going to say, no, you know, that's bogus. This is, you know, a scientific investigation. And, uh, well, let's just talk about leave all this woo-woo stuff. Let's just talk about nuts and bolts. And I think that limited perspective is, is um, not only is it um, unenlightened, but it's also ridiculous because those people who promote the nuts and bolts approach are trying to do it as a science. But when you go to MUFON and you talk to the um, activists in that organization, which is you know, very successful for what they do and provides a service to the larger society in terms of studying reports. But if you ask, if you tell them, I'm going out to engage the phenomena directly so that I don't have to listen to other people's sightings reports like you're doing in MUFON, I'm gonna write my own sighting report. They get scared. They actually are frightened of the subject because they've been listening to abductionist propaganda for you know, 10, 15, 30 years, that, that they see contact as being in the context of a, a criminal act, a so-called alien abduction. Well, what kind of scientist is afraid of his test tube? What kind of scientist is afraid you know, of his telescope? And, and the essence of science is real-time investigation. And what MUFON has been doing is important for sure, but it's more like journalism, describing things that happened in the past. Yeah. So, so I, I went into this uh, CE5 initiative after having 30 years of experience as a, since a teenager as being an organizer in social movements. And and in that you, you know you came across a few uh, prime contactees. Well, Stephen Greer was the first, and right. he was he was an outstanding example. Now there'll be perhaps some people in your audience who have little liking for Stephen Greer. I should say from the beginning that I worked very closely with him 
Um, he was uh, a generous host. I spent time at his home. I shared meals with him. And we worked in the contact network that he founded, uh, but that was primarily run by Shari Admack. And uh, um, that, that kind of camaraderie of when you're under very intense situations ins inspires a kind of loyalty. Um, I honor the work that we did together, those five, six years that I was active in his network. But when I broke with him for personal, political, and professional reasons in 1998, I have not spoken to him since, but I have followed his uh, continuing activities through talking to people who are working directly with him, as well as you know, over the years watching his uh, videos and reading his books. Uh, but I am no longer a fan of Stephen Greer, MD, uh, and I have, you know, on social media offered what I hope are fair and balanced criticisms, but nonetheless, criticisms of what he's become these last 25 years since we no longer are associated. Yeah. And um, so you, you met some other prime contactees. Do you just want to mention yeah, sure. uh, them briefly? Yeah, First of all, I, I was limited when I joined the network. I hadn't been meditating. I, I was an atheist. <clears throat> so it was a leap of faith to get involved in a program. But as part of the process, I developed some rudimentary knowledge of spirituality, started a regular meditation practice. And I noticed there were things that were happening to me that were unusual. I lost my taste for meat. I'd always been a meat and potato man. <clears throat> Kill one cow, kill them all. I wanted meat and potatoes on the table. Once I started meditating and praying, which was also Stephen Greer recommended a book by Larry Dossey, another physician, Larry Dossey, MD, Recovering the Soul. And he made a very good case for the, the, the benefits of non-directive prayer. So I started praying as well. And I became, you might call a new age neo-Buddhist. That was a radical change, um, but also lost 20 pounds and um, was hiking in the high desert and uh, was healthier mentally and physically uh, than I had been in, you know, since I started medical school some 20 years before. So, so um, Stephen Greer was the real deal during the earlier years. His capacity to attract the phenomena has somewhat decreased. And this happens. It happens to Sixto Pus Wells, who was also another prime contactee, who was the one of the most prominent people in the network known initially as Mission Rama, then became Rama, now it was Rama with a R-A-H-M-A uh, designation. And they were the Peruvian contactees that started in 1974 in Lima, Peru. And they facilitated thousands of people having what I call HICE, human-initiated contact events, popularly known as CE5. And by the time that when Stephen Greer was still in high school, uh, they were doing uh, similar type work um, with profound uh, levels of psi interactions. And they developed people who used automatic writing, multiple uh, individuals who they called antennas when they gave good, accurate information. So the idea of, of CE5, uh, which is, a, I think, an unfortunate term, I prefer HICE human initiated contact event uh, that was going on, you know, back in the seventies. And what I realized when working with Stephen Greer 
is that he had an ongoing direct telepathic relationship with the intelligence behind the phenomena. He went out in Gulf Breeze in March of 1992. But even before that, and we'll get into that, a year previously in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, he had a successful CE5 in which, according to his report, it was picked up on local airport radar. And uh, it was after that event, I believe, that he um, not only attracted the uh, interest of the intelligence community, but they actually facilitated one of their people to make contact with him. Was the, as a result of which one, 91 or 92? 91. Okay, okay. And that was in North Carolina? Yep, it was the first, it was, he had a, for a very short time, he had a working group. Um, Stephen Greer is a, a marvelous meditator. Uh, he's a skilled organizer in the kinds of events that made this project Starlight, then became the Disclosure Project. But he never really ran a working group, which is a whole different set of skills. But for a while he did have you know, people in Asheville, North Carolina that were working with him. But people don't usually stay with Stephen Greer too long. You know, I, I lasted five years with some difficulty. Uh, there's a long line of, you might call it the Stephen Greer Broken Hearts Club. There's a long line of talented activists who have been turned off because of uh, some, you know, some of the unfortunate parts of his persona and behavior. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a common theme with um, Dr. Greer is that there's a lot of rotating support. So people are supporters for a while, they get close, they learn about some stuff, and then they right. kind of are turned off and, and move, yeah, move I, I had to work. I had to work very hard to stay in his network. Uh, the, you know, I was ready to break with him in 95. That's a whole difference. That's how I came up with the term heist. And it was very interesting what happened. I, I may have mentioned this before. We should perhaps do a, a whole session on intelligence, counterintelligence, and how the intelligence services worked uh, the contact network in terms of surveillance and that sort of thing. But in any case, um, but the, the another example, we're getting back to prime contact D. Another example, so it was the Gulf Breeze sightings, okay? And there on Navarre Beach, uh, you know, 25, 30 miles from Pensacola Naval Air Station, we're heavily uh, uh, monitored by multiple airports as well as the sophisticated radar of the, of the Naval Air Station. Uh, he was able to track not one, but three typical Gulf Breeze UFOs, Gulf Breeze UFOs. And on the videos that you can still see on the internet, they're the typical Gulf Breeze. Uh, there's a, a bright light and then there's underneath, there's a power ring. And the people who lived in Gulf Breeze and had been having sightings there, you know, for a three or four years before um, Stephen Greer showed up and facilitated that March 1992 event. Um, they said, yeah, there was no doubt that those were uh, what they called extraterrestrial spacecraft at the time. So that, you know, that was, those videos, by the way, are the best and practically only evidence that Stephen Greer was allowed and his entire contact network was allowed to have in terms of video, quality videos of contact events. Uh, and when I was in Mexico with Stephen Greer and three other contact workers, um, a massive triangular-shaped UFO came out between the, the volcanoes. It was several hundred feet across at night. It was signaling at us. It blocked out the stars. It was accompanied by a small 
well, small, maybe 30 feet disc compared to the larger so-called mothership. But our attempts to document that event was complicated by uh, an event of high strangeness when all our cameras stopped working as soon as the UFO got close. I'm talking about a uh, state of the art, which was pretty primitive back then, but we had night vision attached to a video camera. We had the 35 millimeter single lens reflex. We even had a cheap uh, spring operated, one of these brownies click, or I used to call them brownies. Um, none of the equipment, including the spring operated camera worked as we were interacting with this large UFO that signaled at us and signaled back at us, that sort of thing. So you know, Stephen Greer had a track record. One, one very interesting event that showed, in my mind, clearly he had direct telepathic, direct telepathic communication with the intelligences behind the phenomena, was that in the fall of 1995, we had a conference in Asheville, North Carolina. And as part of that training uh, module that was associated with the conference, we went out on, in the uh, Appalachian Mountains, I think it was near Mount Washington, one of the highest points in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And Stephen Greer told us as we were assembled around him, the, uh, the, the encounter is gonna last 45 minutes. And I looked at the clock and as um, we were staring up into the sky, which was heavily overcast, directly above us, a circle of, clear, of clearing occurred in the cloud cover. It was like, if you've ever seen the old fashioned irises to a camera that could be opened and closed, like, like, like fisheye, I think they call it. But in any case, the, the circle of, of clarity got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then a UFO appeared and we had interactions with signaling in the center of that cleared space. 45 minutes later, to the, you know, to the minute. Stephen Greer said it was over and the, the clouds came in again from all sides in a very uh, unnatural way and, and cleared the, uh, and, and provided a cloud cover once again for us to, you know, and that was it. So it's that kind of uh, direct telepathic communication where he was able to get advanced notice and Stephen Greer uh, told the working group coordinators that you too may be given advance notice as to when, where in the sky, and the number of craft that are going to appear. And on two separate occasions during my tour as working group coordinator, I did indeed receive advanced, very accurate information. It was October 1993. Uh, one craft was going to appear in the Northwest sky at exactly 2 a.m where our team was operating at the base of Queen Mountain. And then uh, several years later, the same thing happened again when we were filming in um, Topanga State Park, uh, an encounter. I got advance notice that three craft were going to appear in the, uh, again, it was Northwest Sky, uh, but in a different location. This time it was nine o'clock and sure enough, the, the events that occurred were uh, congruent with the advance notice that I had received. Now, by 1993, I was having a crisis, a leadership type of crisis, because I had gone a long way from being a, well, I used to call myself a um, diehard materialist. Um, and I had to do a 12-step 
recovery program to recover my soul. And uh, so I was, uh, but still I did not have psychic ability. And I, I, there was a couple of encounters that occurred where I actually became frightened by the phenomena. And that was discouraging me considerably because here I was supposed to lead a team and I uh, was an emergency room physician and dealing with a lot of adversity. And yet I was fearful that beings would come right into our research site, which is, which actually did happen on some occasions. So I needed to get closer to the phenomenon. I was asking, I was praying for assistance. Well, assistance came to me in the form of a boost in my psychic ability and the manifestation of the second prime contactee that I met, a young man that I'll call Misha. I call him, uh, that's not his real name, um, but he surfaced, and I use the word surface because my, in my judgment, rather than a scientific paradigm, one should look at the UFO phenomena from an intelligence, counterintelligence perspective, not the perspective of the national security state, but the, the perspective of a social movement that will exist in the future that will demand world peace, uh, social justice, and environmental protection. So in any case, um, this, uh, and I think of the prime contactees in a sense as being agents, and Jacques Vallée used the term higher intelligence agency. And I, I look at prime contactees as agents, or maybe even case officers, as the case might be, <laughs> Uh, for working for a higher intelligence agency. And so Misha surfaced as an EKG tech in 1992. And, you know, we, there were a lot of things about him that were attractive. We were both Jewish, both of uh, Eastern European, Russian Jewish descent. And he even came from an area where about a few hundred miles from where my grandparents on my mother's side grew up before they emigrated to the United States. It was from Belarus, which is not far from the Lithuanian and Latvian uh, uh, countries where they were. And so and I also spoke Russian because I studied in college. So we, I had a, a person to talk Russian to. And in 1992, he said something innocuous like, um, what do you think of UFOs? And at that point, I was not sharing openly in the ER what I was doing. Eventually, I got very open about it, and to the point where the nurses used to tease me, and they'd say, Dr. Burks, are you running out to chase UFOs? And I would kid them back and say, with my best New York accent, you think that the UFOs, you think, you think I'm chasing the UFOs? No, they're chasing me. <laughs> and before I came out of the closet, as it were, uh, I didn't you know, respond to when, he, when, when Misha said to me, you know, what do you think of UFOs? I said something like, well, space is so vast that uh, if there were an intelligent life out there, it would be an incredible waste of space. And, but as I got more experienced as a working group coordinator in the second year in 1993, he then surfaced and told me a story. Now, I can't verify this story, but it certainly uh, had an impact on the course of my field work for the next three years, four years. And that was, he said that when he was an adolescent in, in, in Russia, he had a number of sightings. He even claimed that he was taken on board for what sounded like an emergency appendectomy. But that's, that's another story. But in any case, he had a, an ongoing relationship with UFO intelligences as a contactee. Not surprisingly, it was a happy, positive relationship. 
And he said that while he was in Belarus, uh, waiting to emigrate to the United States, he had a dream in which allegedly, take it with a big grain of salt, he would emigrate to the United States, would get a job in healthcare because he was trained as a nurse in a, in a military uh, junior college. And um, he would uh, work with a tall bearded Jewish doctor, didn't have glasses at the time, I was more blonde than gray, and he would do uh, contact work with that individual. So a year after he's working in the emergency room, he says to me, when I came to work here a year ago, I saw you, uh, he was working then as an EKG tech, you were the, the person in my dream. You know, that seemed pretty far-fetched at the time, but considering what happened once he joined the team and our level of contact way went up and every time that, practically every time Misha was in the field with us, we would have sightings and other kind of interactions. Go ahead. And I just, I think this is important to point out. Um, and, and there's a pattern here too, which uh, you don't have to discuss, but we'll both recognize right. is that just because somebody has a high level of contact and success with UFO contact or is a prime contactee, that has nothing to say of their moral compass. Oh, it, they, the prime contactees span the full gambit of good, bad, and ugly. Uh, they, you know, it's just, they, I, I just, I just want to point that. Yeah, it's an important point because in new age subculture, there's uh, the, the um, mixing of spiritual development with UFO contact and people somehow imagine that we're being rewarded by our high level of spiritual. And this is another reason why the counterintelligence intelligence model comes in. If you're a, and UFO intelligence is because they're operating in hostile territory. Um, not only attempts to shoot them down, but also to persecute and silence witnesses who they are working with. They have to adopt the position of a kind of higher intelligence agency that might at times appear somewhat ruthless in their methods by using as their agents of influence people who have no moral standing whatsoever. But if you're a case officer for an intelligence service, the most important characteristic of someone you're going to work with is will they get the job done all right and yeah. even even to the to the idea really quick i don't want to sidetrack too much but um you know th there's a constant theme even in, in spirituality um although somebody might have high level attainments of wisdom and uh, spiritual knowledge also in in buddhism it's recognized that morality is a separate training from wisdom training uh, and they're not, they, they don't necessarily correlate. So even though somebody had, might be able to be a master meditator and get into very um, uh, deep states of wisdom and insight, um, or even the powers and psychic abilities and what have you, that doesn't mean that they have a, a, a great morality compass. Um, right. So again, just something I wanted to point out for people, just because somebody has a high level of contact does not mean anything else <laughs> other than that. Right. I think that's a very important point. And uh, when it came to Misha, I learned the hard way about his failings in the exact way that you described it. But that that's another story. Well, and that, and yeah. again, it is another story, but I did want to mention, you know, yeah. Dr. Greer had his issues, Misha, uh, and even they were falling out with Sixto Paswells and Rama. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and a lot and, of it has you know, to do with money. And, and let's be realistic. Um, 
you know, if you're a, a president of the United States or a head of a corporation and you want to develop an intelligence network, you don't have to worry about money uh, because, you know, corporate security and government security is paid for by, either by the taxpayers or by the shareholders, okay? But if you're in non-human intelligence trying to establish a network of activists that are going to interact with them over a long-term program that involves, in my judgment, not only a spiritual transformation of our culture, but also allowing us to create the conditions on earth where we can have open and direct relationships with advanced cultures. That means radical reform of our civilization. Well, if you're trying to develop a network in hostile territory, um, you're going to have to use some of the methods of an intelligence service operating in just such a situation. And that's why I learned to accept uh, the, the, my own failings, but also the failings of other people uh, who are called upon to do this work. Because in the long run, the goal is, is important. We are only taking small steps towards that creation of a better society, within my opinion, in my opinion, is being facilitated by our interactions with the UFO intelligences. Anyway, but right. people may not um, be interested in that, so let's move on. Yeah, I and again, these are all important points. Uh, so there, there are a ton of things I want to talk to you about today. So we covered the prime contactees a little bit. Uh, you know, and, and any other future one, we can go deeper into it. But uh, I did want to talk about, you know, in, in the result of um, some of Dr. Greer's early successes with facilitating uh, contact events, human initiated contact events, uh, he, he got, uh, there, were, there was interest uh, in Dr. Greer from the intelligence services and community and uh, you know, that led to people interacting with, with Dr. Stephen Greer. And he was, he was even invited to a conference, the, the TREAT conference. We, we, have to, we have to back up a little bit. And yeah. I'm going to recommend a book to the audience. Every contact and disclosure uh, contact worker, volunteer worker, should um, read Man Managing Magic by Grant Cameron. If you cannot read that book, uh, then get a hold of his... Uh, Portal to Ascension webinar on the same topic from 2017. Because what happened to Stephen Greer happened before. Uh, he was approached by the intelligence services very early in his uh, career as a contact activist. But it happened before. And what, it, what Grant has put forward is that the US government, the executive branch, the intelligence services, and, to, and with some interaction from uh, the corporate aerospace industry, um, they have a gradual acclimatization program that on one hand, you have a, a UFO cover, which is truly massive in nature. And you have a, what has been called the UFO truth embargo, but it's a leaky uh, cover up. It's a leaky embargo. In other words, for reasons that will become clear, I hope in a moment, it's important that the terrestrial population, the American people in particular, have some awareness of the reality of the phenomenon. And this is done because the intelligence services and the major corporations that are responsible for the cover-up, I call them the control groups, which is a far preferable term to the term cabal, which you may have heard, which 
my Jewish friends complain is anti-Semitic, and hopefully people will stop using that term to describe those control groups that are managing the cover-up. But in any case, the um, they have been carrying out from the very beginning, I'm talking about the control groups, the executive branch intelligence services, a program of on one hand, you have a massive cover-up. On the other hand, you have leaking of a combination of accurate information and some disinformation. And so in Managing Magic, Grant Cameron, in a masterful analysis, has talked about messiahs. It's a somewhat pejorative term and somewhat sarcastic. But these are people who um, play an important role in terms of the government's a gradual acclimatization program. So you had the most prominent being uh, Bill Moore in the 1980s, who was openly uh, in the end exposed to someone who was working with the intelligence services. Then you had Dr. Stephen Greer in the 90s, and now more recently you have Tom DeLong. All of them follow a similar MO, where in order to disguise the government's fingerprints on the release of information, they work through intermediaries. And um, in, in terms of Bill Moore, it was the MJ-12 documents, which some of our viewers may not recall, but was uh, briefing papers allegedly prepared for uh, General, General Eisenhower when he became president of the United States. And it talked about uh, this group of specially empowered, uh, very prominent scientists, and government agents, and politicians who were controlling the investigation of the phenomena as well as the cover-up, the so-called MJ-12. And then you've got Dr. Stephen Greer, who from the very beginning um, was set up not by ex the executive branch, but by the intelligence behind the phenomena itself to play that role. He was groomed not only by the US intelligence services, but by the higher intelligence agency, you know, so-called boys upstairs, that's the way Stephen Greer, I mean, uh, Grand Cameron call, calls them. Yeah, UFO intelligence. And they, and they did this in a, in a spectacular event uh, that had related to the Bush White House. I'm talking about Bush daddy, uh, the, first, uh, pres the first Bush president we had in the 1980s. And it was a drug summit that was supposed to occur. And Dr. Greer has written about this in his book. I believe, despite his detractors saying that he makes things up, I believe the ac he accurately described in the book, as well as the stories he told with us, how in 1988, and when he was in Washington, DC with his family on a trip, he had a, a remote view of an attempt of an assassination on the uh, president of the United States who was flying in Air Force One into Colombia and the drug lords who were, had obtained from the Fedayeen, the Afghan freedom fighters, they had obtained Stinger missiles. And in advance of this event, Stephen Greer had a very accurate remote view of a launching of a missile in Air Force One being destroyed. And as Stephen Greer tells the story, and again, some people are gonna just throw it away because of the source, but I think it was, he told the truth as he knew it, he was, terribly disturbed by this uh, prognostic remote view against his wife's wishes, he calls the White House and asks to speak to head of security. And I believe he's written about this in- uh, Hidden truth, forbidden knowledge, I think. Exactly. So you can read up on that event, but in any case, detailed information was uh, transmitted from the CSETI director, CSETI director to be, 
That was a year, two years before C. Sadie was founded in 1990. And he was even able to identify the insignias on the uniforms of the units of the Colombian Defense Forces that had been infiltrated and were launching this missile. So th th then there was a change in the security arrangements for Bush, and he landed in a separate place. And it was US Marines who were in charge of security. And there was a controversy about that as well. So when people ask why he got that remote view, I believe it was Stephen Greer who volunteered the information that, and certainly it seems obvious to me, that that remote view was given to him by the, so-called UFO intelligences to introduce himself, to give his calling card and through him their calling card to the executive branch of the United States government. So in 1990, Stephen Greer, if you one of his followers or read his book, you know that he actually, when he was 18 years old, he had what he believed was his first onboard experience as a, as a teenager and um, then um, some 15 years later, he gets uh, a very strong telepathic message to, according to Greer again, to pick up the work that he had uh, put down. And he had developed the technique of coherent thought sequencing as a teenager where deep meditation would allow him to facilitate the attraction of UFOs. And he had numerous sightings as a teenager. What happened was he didn't share this in public and he only shared it with a few of his closest confidence, which for a couple of years I was. Um, then we had a falling out in, uh, you know, 97. Uh, but I don't think I've ever shared the story. Um, I don't think he would deny it because uh, in the CSETI circles, this was a common knowledge what Stephen Greer had shared. In 1990, he had another onboard experience. This time they allegedly landed in his Yes, his backyard. And if you've ever been to the old house that Stephen Greer remodeled, it was a palatial estate. He and his wife were involved in getting old mansions from the Biltmore uh, Manor, fixing them up and selling them so that he was able to you know, accumulate a small fortune along with the money that he earned working 50, 60 hours a week in the ER. So he was financially independent when he uh, started his career of contact activism. And on the second onboard experience, uh, he said that he went to a satellite. He assumed it was the moon because, you know, and he was able to go to the place on the lunar surface. This is allegedly in ET spacecraft. I know this sounds kind of crazy, but this is the story. And I don't think he was lying. And from what... Uh, he shared with us on his conversations from the intelligence services. I don't think they thought he was lying either. And he was able to see at the dividing line between the dark and light side of the moon, massive UFOs um, above the lunar surface and purple lightning bolts were going up and down in a kind of electric charging. And he, at the level of knowledge, he acquired the information that these were massive UFOs that were going to be involved with facilitating a contact program that was gonna unfold in the 1990s, the next decade, okay? So I believe that story may be in 
hidden truth, forbidden knowledge, I'm not sure. But in any case, it's important to take note of because he later then described what he had seen to some people in the intelligence community. And allegedly, they confirmed that they had um, imaging that showed that such structures existed. But, you know, in any case, 1991, he had his, 1990, he formed CSETI after the second alleged onboard experience. And then he went on uh, to have a successful CE5, and I think it was the spring of 91, uh, where in Asheville, North Carolina, they were able to attract a UFO. And he said it was picked up on the, the radar of the local uh, airfield. Sometime around that time, Stephen Greer told us that a commander, Will Miller, in full uniform, he was then an active duty uh, commanding, he was a commander in the uh, Naval Intelligence. He comes to his house. Again, uh, I'm not sure Will Miller will confirm this because of the sense of nature of the conversation that was shared uh, to us. All the working group coordinators, unfortunately, I'm the only one left, heard this story, his closest supporter, Stephen Greer's. And, Allegedly, Will Miller says to Stephen Greer, I want to help you. There are people in Washington that want to help you. And allegedly, this uh, in uniform, this commander said, I believe that you have been put on earth by God to open up our civilization to um, contact with extraterrestrials. Now, if you know anything about Grant Cameron's uh, managing magic, scenario where the recruiters of intelligence services play to people's weaknesses. And, and Grant has said that all messiahs, whether it be Bill Moore, Dr. Stephen Greer, or Tom DeLong, they all have big egos. And so this plea of flattery and, and cooperation uh, is one of their tools to bring you in to their orbit. I mean, they're intelligence officers, so they have great people skills. They, they have charm, they go to charm school. I have to tell you that if you've ever been with a case officer, typically in the intelligence service, these are nice guys. I spent two days with um, Richard Doty uh, at a conference uh, in 2019. And I had a good, I mean, I enjoyed his company. It was very, it was fun to be with him, even though people despise him for all the terrible things that they imagine he's done, most of which is not true. Um, but not, not in the case. So Will Miller is also a, a very charming guy. And if you want to hear that charm, you should listen to the 2013 interview between Stephen Greer and Will Miller on the uh, Puja uh, network that they, they recorded. And I think that's one of the few times they were on together. And yeah. it, was, it was there that he, he admitted Stephen Greer couldn't remember the exact year that they met. Will Miller reminded it was 1991. Yeah. Um, so so Stephen Greer was already on their radar from 88, and then with his successful, successful CE5 in 91, Miller shows up. And then in 92, he goes on to have a series of incredible encounters. The one I mentioned was uh, Gulf Breeze. And what happened? Well, one month later, he, he, he's appearing at Treat. Now, for those viewers who may not remember ancient, what seems like ancient UFO uh, history, uh, Treat was an organization that was primarily investigating experiencers, although they put it totally within the 
paradigm of abductions. And TREAT stands T-R-E-A-T, Treatment and Research for Experienced Anomalous Trauma, T-R-E-A-T. General Stubblevine, who was uh, head of uh, US Army Intelligence, uh, he was then retired. You can learn about him more uh, from uh, books on remote viewers, as well as, uh, so I think, Ingo Swan and others. In any case, this retired uh, US, and this guy's really tough. You know, it'd be army intelligence. You gotta be a tough person. And um, he, uh, his wife, uh, Renee LeBeau, I think, psychiatrist, was one of the facilitators. And uh, all of a sudden, an organization that investigates alien abductions is inviting uh, what you might call a raging contactee, Stephen Greer, to be the keynote speaker at their conference, which, sound, which would seem like somewhat of an anomaly. He's saying ET good, we have to make nice and interact. They're viewing the contact experience within uh, the confines of what they define as a criminal act, abductions. Nevertheless, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows, fellows, UFO <laughs> politics even stranger, okay? High yeah. <laughs> Okay, so again, this is information that was communicated not just to me, but to all the working group coordinators and Dr. Greer's closest supporters. Um, I don't believe this has ever been writ written down. Or maybe, yeah, I'm not sure. In any case, um, Stephen Greer is well received. After that, there was reception in um, the general's uh, uh, suite at the hotel where the meeting was being held. According to D Stephen Greer, who's you know six foot three, and in those days was in tremendous physical condition as a bodybuilder, and you know marathon. Well, he didn't do marathons, but he rode his bike 20, 30, 50 miles, and was in great physical shape. And uh, you have these very tough people. Solbine was there. Ed Dames was there. Um, I don't know if. David Blackmore was there. He, he wrote a book on neurology. He was in that circle. He was a, a major. Retired. These are all retired officers. Um, and I think uh, John Alexander may, may have also been there as well. I'm, I, I seem to recall that name came up as well. Mm -hmm. So according to Stephen Greer, you can take it with a grain of salt, or in my case, I believe he told it accurately because I heard him tell this story a dozen times to different close members, inner circle of CSETI. And the story always was exactly the same. And as Mark Twain liked to remark, the nice thing about telling the truth is you only have to remember it one way. If this was a tall tale, you know, there would be discrepancies. And yet every time I heard him describe these events, exactly as he said it happened. So in this conference uh, uh, suite, uh, allegedly, uh, this tough intelligence officer, retired, a general, says, who gives you the right to do this work? And, you know, Stephen Greer is like, what do you mean? I was like, who gives you, Stephen Greer, the right to do this work? In other words, there was a, a, an element of threat or, or confrontation. And according to the CSETI director, Stephen Greer said, well, um, my people have been here uh, in terms of the settlers going back to the 17th and 18th century. 
And I think his one of his grandparents was either quarter or half Cherokee. So he, Stephen Greer traced his lineage back even further through his native connection. Uh, and he said, and furthermore, my uncle was one of the researchers, scientists, engineers who worked on the lunar module. He had played a critical role. So I'm a patriotic American. My family's been involved with space and I don't need anybody's permission to do this. This is my right. I don't know if he quoted the constitution. I have freedom of association. When I've been confronted, who gives you the right to do this? Well, as a free citizen of the United States, freedom of association. And so according to the uh, city director, Stolbein looked him hard and said, okay, just hold this. And one of the people who was functioning like an adjuvant for the general, retired, left the room and they talked about other things. 45 minutes later, the adjutant comes back, takes the general aside, says uh, something to him. And then Stubblebine comes back and he says, okay. And Greer says, okay, what? Okay, you can do it. You have our permission. And so what Stubblebine was describing was a, a group of operatives within the control, uh, what the term he used back then was better than cabal. He called the control groups. And that I think is a more accurate description of way in which a, U a UFO cover-up can be managed. You have a bunch of different factions or cells operating in coordination, uh, sometimes uh, in opposition, but basically Stephen Greer was given permission by the control groups to do this. And that's when the charm offensive allegedly started. Um, Stephen Greer alleged that he was given money. The, the, there was some conflation of the, there was some, I think it was, uh, it was seven or eight figures, you know, about ten, five to $10 million was what they, he could set up his own institute. He'd never have to worry about money again, but he, all the research would go, uh, would be kept by the sponsoring organization, kind of like what Bigelow set up. A lot of their findings was secret, okay? And, you know, this was not what uh, the, the, his friends in the higher intelligence agency had commissioned him to do. A network of working groups who would use PSI to interact to, as part of an opening up of our civilization to contact with advanced cultures. So Stephen Greer said no. And the phone calls, you know, kept coming. And I remember he even described how his wife was, told by Stubblebine how, how brilliant Stephen was and how smart and handsome, whatever, you know, charm school offensive. Yeah. And, and Emily allegedly said, why don't you, you know, listen to what he has to say. Finally, when Stephen Greer says, hell no, there was hell to pay. House was broken into, uh, even though they have a private security for their whole area. Uh, nothing was taken, but his uh, uh, file would be left open, which he usually locked. So that sort of thing. So nonetheless, he proceeded with his organizing efforts at you know, tr tremendous personal cost. In the old days, uh, we, we paid $40 to join CSETI and $40 for a workshop. And I can tell you in the, from 1992 to 1994, almost every time, 95% of the time, if you went out with Stephen Greer, you were guaranteed a sighting. I, I saw it. Uh, I, I went out in the field with him maybe five, 10 times, and nine out of 10, there was you know, anomalous activity in the sky and also things happening on, around you on the ground too. Um, 
So um, then comes phase two. If you read Managing Magic, again, it's, uh, or watch the video, uh, Portals to Ascension, Grant Cameron describes how John Peterson, who's a personal friend of uh, then CIA director, the first under the, the Clinton administration, uh, James Woolsey, who had an interesting Navy connection. A lot of these guys, Edgar Mitchell was a Navy, had a Navy connection, he was a Navy aviator. You got Commander Will Miller, you got the Wilson tapes, again, an admiral, head of DIA, but a, a you know, Navy, Navy intelligence. So there's a big Navy connection. And, and Woolsey, although he was a lawyer during his military service, I think he was undersecretary of the Navy for a while. I think, I think that was. So there's all these guys have Navy connections. And, and, and there was John Peterson, who's head of the Arlington Institute, which is a, a small but very successful think tank uh, for um, the defense industry. Uh, he um, was a former Navy aviator. And I got to meet uh, John Peterson when the Charm School Offensive second wave was in, in process. And it was John Peterson who set up a meeting with his friend, CI Director Woolsey. And I happened to be at the CSETI planning meetings where there was a discussion of uh, how the CIA director was going to meet uh, with Stephen Greer. And I think I even saw the telegram where John Peterson described the special security arrangements. They had to have a cover story. It was going to be a dinner party, yada, yada, yada. That, that, you know, Peterson and Woolsey then later denied that there was a briefing. But really, the, the controversy had to do with the dis meaning of the, the word briefing. In Washington, a briefing is where the um, an intelligence officer with a briefcase handcuffed to his arm brings in papers, you sign a non-disclosure agreement, and then you're read, quote, read into the program. So they were denied that there was a briefing, but there was a meeting, it was a late, later acknowledged. And as, John, as, as Grant Cameron says, anytime a UFO investigator meets with the head of CIA and talks about UFOs, it's a big deal. Okay, yeah. but it's not, it's not happened. So uh, that was the next phase of uh, Stephen Greer's involvement. And it's best to think of him um, as uh, an agent of influence at times, but at times far more than just an agent of influence because unlike Bill Moore in the 1980s and uh, Rockstar and uh, uh, owner of To The Stars Academy, um, Tom DeLong. Tom DeLong in the 19, uh, now current time, Stephen Greer was an agent of UFO intelligence with direct telepathic communication with that intelligence. So, you know, when you ask, um, when you ask people in the intelligence community, why do you follow contact experience around? Why do you carry out surveillance of high level contactees? The answer you get back is that the, the intelligence doesn't like, the, the UFO intelligence doesn't like their counterparts in the national security state. And so they have to follow the contactees in order to learn something. And so that's why there's great interest with Christopher Bledsoe, Stephen Greer, and why there was considerable interest in our operations as well. But that again is another story where we can talk about all the surveillance and the threatening phone calls and 
and all the other stuff that we had to endure during those years. So, so in any case, this gives you a background to um, my early years of participation where I was witness to how Grant Cameron's described gradual acclimatization program was carried out with Stephen Greer as an agent of influence for the groups within the intelligence services that are working for more openness on this subject and the intelligence behind the phenomenon. Yeah, and you know, it's it's no secret that that Dr. Stephen Greer received a lot of help and support from people within the intelligence community. Uh, you know, those who we've named here and other people uh, with deep connections uh, who we haven't named who uh, helped Dr. Stephen Greer in different ways in this, again, acclimatization, managing magic kind of idea. Um, but, uh, you know, I did also want to, to discuss the Wilson meeting that happened in 1997, which people are going to be familiar with nowadays through the Wilson Davis notes where Eric Davis met with Wilson in 2002 by the EG&G building in a car and had a discussion about uh, Wilson's journey, uh, trying to discover these kind of secret UFO programs that are unacknowledged special access programs. Uh, but this story goes back and it begins in uh, 1997 with Dr. Stephen Greer, Edgar Mitchell, Commander Will Miller, uh, and, and Thomas Wilson in the Pentagon. Uh, but I, I was actually, um, I found a letter actually between Will Miller and Tom Wilson from 1995. So, Tom, you know, Admiral or Vice Admiral Tom Wilson, Deputy Director of the DIA, uh, was having conversations with Will Miller uh, about this subject in 95 in preparation two years before they actually met in the Pentagon in 97. Right. And you have to uh, acknowledge a certain sociological or political fact of life. And that is, uh, this is uh, the Super Bowl. That's what the term that Grant Cameron uses. Each one of us is in uh, the Super Bowl. And it's the biggest game in the history of our planet, how these advanced cultures are reaching out and interacting with our civilization and may have been doing it for a very long time. And then you've got the United States military. These are officers who have been trained, made sacrifices for their country. Some of them even died. And nevertheless, nonetheless, they are denied access to one of the most important military industrial intelligence challenges that the national security state and all governments in the world face. Because the secrecy of this um, project, and, and remember Grant Cameron from uh, the notes that he got from Wilbur Smith back in 1950, the UFO investigation was held at a level of classification according to Wilbur Smith, who interacted with American officials in Washington, D.C. in 1950, the level of classification was higher than that for the H-bomb, the development of the super, as they called it. So you, have a, you can have a corporal or a sergeant like Richard Doty, who's read into these programs and is allowed to interact with these projects and carry out intelligence work. But the general, his officers up the chain of command may not have access. For, for people who have dedicated their lives to serving their country to be, not, to be denied participation 
is, is uh, potentially highly humiliating. And this is exactly what happened. Uh, and uh, so you can go on with the narrative. And I was there uh, at the behind closed door briefings in April of 1997 when Edgar Mitchell, uh, Commander Will Miller, Stephen Greer and Sherry Adamak were into the Pentagon. Uh, I know that the meeting happened because I saw them making arrangements for transportation and everything else to get over there. So, so that, that um, and I believe Stephen Greer's description of that analysis, description and analysis of, of that meeting and those events was accurate. He was attacked uh, continuously when he started talking about it. Um, and yet the evidence shows that um, not only was Admiral Wilson denied um, access to those uh, reverse engineering projects, but he apparently, according to the notes that uh, then young scientist had when he interviewed him, uh, was also threatened with loss of uh, retirement benefits and one of the stars would be taken off his admiral admiralty status. So that brings you uh, to 1997. And that was a year later, I resigned from Susetti again for political, personal, and uh, professional reasons. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, I just wanted to brush up on that really quickly since we're talking about some of the meetings that Stephen Greer had. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that you had resigned from CSETI. Um, and, you know, is there any detail that you want to go into about why you're Yeah, I can talk about it because it, uh, there are, there, there is, um, I won't talk about the personal and the professional because that's, um, I think, uh, somewhat indelicate. It would reveal certain uh, confidences even to this date that I'm willing to uh, keep, even though I don't have anything to do with Stephen Greer for 25 years. But on the, uh, on the political, it had to do with the nature of the CE5 initiative. Now, in 1992, 93, and 94, we were doing very well. We had working groups coming into operation. I was empowered to train. So was Sherry. So was Wayne. And we had satellite groups. And we had, you know, a half dozen groups that were coming in and out. But there was only three groups, uh, Phoenix with Wayne, Sherry, and, and in Denver, and I was in L.A. And my team was set up almost I mean, I could never have organized that team by myself. UFO intelligence provided me not with one, but with two other physicians in my medical group. They facilitated uh, contact uh, and staged sightings for my colleagues to draw them into my team. Uh, we had two PhD psychologists, one with 30 years experience. We had a 747 pilot who was also recruited, who showed up. I and mean, we had a writer in Hollywood um, who uh, seemingly by chance showed up at the same conference that I did uh, and saw Stephen Greer in 1992. So you had behind the scenes uh, a, a lot of support to bring the working groups together uh, through synchronicity. I could, I could write a chapter on that alone. I'm sure. In any case, 94, but then as Starlight, which was the precursor for the Disclosure Project. Disclosure Project uh, took up more and more time of the Stephen Greer's, uh, you know, he's working 
uh, you know, 40, 50 hours a week. He's got four daughters at home and he's creating this project to bring witnesses forward. He, st he stopped doing as many trainings and we were not getting the kind of support from Asheville um, that some of the people on my team, I know Joe Vallejo said, the, the 747 pilot said, Stephen Greer's dropped us, you know, and, but we were working with Sherry, who was the real uh, heart and soul of the CE5 initiative at that point. Um, but in any case, and she gave us a lot of good advice, right? Even though I disagreed with her and we had fights, when it came to running a working group, you know, she basically uh, taught me a lot of what I needed to know to, to be successful. And uh, so things are going along and I'm now got this prime contactee with me, Misha, where every time we go out into the field, we're having some very intense experiences. I mentioned in previous lectures that there was a series of missing time events that went right across the CE5 network. And one after another, people in Denver, then Phoenix, then myself and Misha, we had missing time. Sometimes in the course of field work, we had double missing time where we'd, we'd lose uh, continuity of consciousness and then we'd come, we'd awaken and then lose it again. This happened to double missing time. So as if the, the intelligence was working the entire network to send us a message, yes, they can do this. They were demonstrating their psych capabilities to the experiencers who were reaching out to them. But as time went on, we, you know, everything became to Project Starlight, Project Starlight. And I wanted to, the internet was young in those days and I wanted to publish our reports on the internet. And I was using the moniker LAC SETI. Well, this for some reason didn't sit well with Stephen Greer who made it clear there was only one CSETI. It was based in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, I was no longer free to, release my reports on the internet. And I said, wait a second, the only way we're gonna be able to get this job done is to have a network of working groups, as many as possible. And by sharing our findings, uh, successes and failures, whatever, we can use the internet as a teaching vehicle and build the network. No, 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 that didn't sit well with Stephen Greer. And Sherry Adamak, who was um, given the unpleasant work of being, she was described as Stephen Greer's hatchet lady. <laughs> she just basically said, you know, you can send your reports to CSETI Central, um, but you're no longer allowed to issue the reports on the internet. And this infuriated me because I was recruited to do exactly what I described, help build the network. And, um, and I now had working with me a little Stephen Greer, a prime contactee who could attract the phenomena. And we could be far more successful if we were able to share our findings. So at that point, I made a break. I said, okay, we're gonna break with CSETI, CE5 initiative. And I came up with a term HICE, human initiated contact experience, that later it changed to event. And we're gonna build our own network. And I, one of the, my colleagues who was active in the team, Dave Gordon, family practitioner, who said to me, well, what's the difference between Heiss and CE5? I says, Heiss is the CE5 initiative without Stephen Greer. We're gonna do it on our own. But we didn't, we didn't uh, announce anything. We just called people, I lined up activists. All our communications were on the internet. And I basically was prepared to make a break. 
However, something happened which held me back. Somebody with a very heavy British accent calls Misha's house. I don't know where she got his number. In the middle of the night, when he's working as a nurse at the hospital, my prime contactee, Misha, and says she wants to help. So she calls when Misha's available and they have a discussion. And she says, we really want to help you with heist. And uh, Sasha, Misha, I should say, gets very excited about it and says, Joe, you see, we're getting success. People want to help us, you know? And I said, what's wrong with this picture, Misha? He says, what? I says, did you bring up the term heist or did she? He says, she brought it up. So where did she get that information? We, she, she's an unknown entity. We don't know. All our communications are telephone. And so we're being set up. They want to, quote, help us in order to divide the CE5 initiative, and hopefully we'll fight among ourselves and our contact efforts will go nowhere because building unity and cooperation within the team and within the network is a key to building cooperation net with the intelligence behind the phenomenon. So at that point, I said, let's cancel our plans. I then went back to uh, CSETI Central and I said to uh, Sherry, listen, if you insist on denying us access to uh, the internet to give our reports out, when we make major breakthroughs, because I was very open that I had Misha working with me, we are not gonna give credit to the parent organization for our successes. And that's when a light went on, I, I assume in Stephen Greer's head, he said, no, 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 that's not that. I don't like that idea so much because we'd be <laughs> taken away from him and his importance. So we worked out a negotiation. I could issue my reports with a proviso saying the, the opinions and information provided are of the author alone, Joe Burks. Uh, they do not reflect policy or, or programs of the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And then I put, I put that proviso on my documents and I continued organizing. And I was able to do that because I had developed sufficient confidence in my organizing ability that I didn't need Stephen Greer. I need less and less of Sherry's assistance. And I had my, you know, my prime contactee who was going to facilitate those interactions. Yeah. And um, again, that, that was in the late nineties. 1995. Oh, no, 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 no. That you actually resigned. I resigned in 98, but then, then things got really messy because, but that's a whole nother story. But there was a problem. I was a problem. See, I have a background that's, um, you know, I've been active in peace and justice movements for, for many years. But through my associations, um, I also was involved with people um, who were on the far left and were under surveillance by the federal government for reasons you can understand. So the fact that Stephen Greer is gonna be developing a more um, <clears throat> intimate relationship with the executive branch intelligence services, and you can read that as NSA, CIA, whatever. Um, I was, I was a, a potential thorn because uh, I was not politically reliable. You know, um, I was too in opposition to the operations of the intelligence community because I had been active in support for, for, for Vietnam to stop the war. I was active in movements during the 80s 
in support of uh, Marxist regimes in Nicaragua that was run by priests, by the way. They were Marxist priests and uh, also supporting activists who wanted to have uh, end to US intervention in Latin America. So I, I kind of was, so I, I um, received a series of threatening phone calls, which is a whole nother story. Um, I, at first I thought it was carried out by Stephen Greer's uh, opponents, you know, who wanted to deny a real, uh, I mean, at that point, I was a crackerjack organizer. I mean, I had been able, I was able to give lectures. I raised money for the organization and gave a lot of support. So they wanted, I thought it was the opposition that was trying to scare me off. Now I think it was probably, you know, his friends in the executive branch intelligence services. So uh, I, they made certain threats. I, you know, I was in my uh, late 40s. I had two kids going who I thought I would like to live long enough to support going through college. And and I, you know, basically combination of some personal stuff that happened with Stephen Greer, um, very ugly stuff that happened. And I, I've just resigned. I had it. I described the political reasons, but I won't get into the personal stuff. Yeah. And actually, um in, in around 2012, 2013, when the serious film released, the entire CSETI board of directors resigned um, at the same time. Right, right. There's a, a, a growing list of the Stephen Greer Lonely Hearts Club. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you know why the, the board of directors all resigned at the same time? I do. Just one one more point about what happened in 97. The irony is, of course, is that the kind of organizing approach that I was promoting and was being censured for was exactly what happened, because in the interval, although Stephen Greer went from charging $40 to over $1,000 for his workshops and things like that, because he had stopped working as a doctor, so he couldn't support his family without charging what was considered exorbitant fees. But by doing all that year after year after year of organizing, and as well as eventually putting out an app, which people would get for you know peanuts of five, ten dollars, that that network that I had envisioned came about. So the plan that I was pursuing was manifested, even though you know the one of the principal organizers, uh, was discouraged from continuing participation in that in 1997. So I, I feel gratified that what I wanted came to fruition. So now you've got dozens of people uh, in you know every country, uh, you know England, Australia. There's a lot of people carrying out what is called CE5 or human initiated staging human initiated contact events. So that you know I'm happy about that. And uh, now what happened in, in 2012? was a whole new crew of people that came in, you know, after I was gone and, and you know, Costa Macris and Jan Bravo, and they were, uh, you know, very close to Stephen Greer. There was a kind of cult-like uh, atmosphere in the group, which I found unhealthy. Um, I remember in 2000, was it 2006? I think it was 2006, I attended, uh, uh, a, a workshop in uh, IONS, Institute of Noetic Sciences, that Stephen Greer was doing a one-day workshop. 
And he was surrounded by a group of close supporters and Costa was there and Jan Bravo, another ER physician. But when I introduced myself, you know, as someone who had worked in during the early days, they all looked at me with suspicion. It was because, you know, they were suspicious. What happened between you and Greer that you no longer were part of the inner circle? You know, it had a kind of cult uh, dynamic and there was all kinds of weirdness going on where, you know, Stephen Greer was uh, drawing attention to uh, radar detectors that were supposedly sending signals, but it turns out it was most likely microwaves from cell phones. And he was describing things up in the sky that almost everyone in the audience couldn't see. Some people might've been seeing something, who knows? But it was just a lot of uh, very strange uh, stuff going on. But eventually uh, they developed the, the first film, Sirius, right? And there were two uh, um, producers who were owed uh, uh, something about eighty or $100,000. They had completed the film. Um, and in the film, there were se uh, segments that showed Stephen Greer doing most of the talking, but Jan Bravo appeared in Costa. There was multiple voices. In other words, to communicate that it's, it's not just Stephen Greer's show, but that there's you know, a network with other people. But according to Costa and, uh, and others who I talked to, uh, Stephen Greer didn't like, didn't like the other voices being, in, and also on camera, he wanted them cut. And he was holding back the concluding money that was uh, to go to the producers uh, until they re-edited the film where all the other people were cut out. So, uh, they were. They thought that was pretty um, backhanded because he had made promises, and now there, those board of directors, they still had control of the uh, banking account for the project, and so they wrote a check for the money that was owed, uh, rather than having the, the producers have to sue Stephen Greer or uh, do what they said, and uh, they, they resigned in mass. There was, yeah. uh, you know. And I tried to get Jan Bravo to corroborate, but apparently a series of intimidations occurred against her and she's refused to talk to me and only talks to a small circle of friends. But she gave tens of thousands of dollars to the CSETI director. Yeah, and there's, there's a similar story with the Disclosure Project that uh, other you know, people were cut out of that um, on, the, on, the, on the front end. You know, and it, was, it looked like Stephen had done the whole thing when other people helped in a lot and, you know, didn't get their due credit. Yeah, um, I was glad that I didn't have to uh, face uh, that. I, I had, uh, it, was, it was a relief to leave Stephen Greer's uh, orbit because um, nobody can stay there too, too long. And yeah. I, stuck it, I stuck it out for five years by essentially working uh, in parallel to him, but having, in the end, uh, it was personally insulting the way he behaved to me and others. I just had had it. I felt sorry for him, I still do, because you know he's made historic contributions and um, he never fulfilled the potential that I had imagined, but I, I probably had uh, aspirations of something that was far beyond not uh, organizing project that anyone could accomplish. To create a social movement, is going to take a long time and it was there has to be an accumulation of activists as well as objective conditions which we are now seeing in terms of the worsening crisis in our our, our environment um 
you know, those UFOs are not flying on fossil fuels. And uh, if we could develop uh, a more Pacific Earth civilization, it might be safe to download into our technological culture the secrets of the so-called free energy. But I don't think they're going to let it happen because under they, meaning the ones who control the technology, the so-called ETs, because uh, given our low level of spiritual development, the first application of such mighty power would be for weapons, more efficient ways of killing millions of each other. So, Yeah. Yeah. And, that, you know, um, getting back to Stephen Greer, it's a shame because, again, like you said, he's had historical contributions. Uh, we may not be where we are now. Yeah. Uh, if it wasn't for those early days, um, you know, again, whether um, some of the acclimatizations facilitated by, uh, you know, the executive branch or, or whoever are, are involved in UFO programs, you know, and or obviously the phenomenon um, working in different ways to influence how disclosure could occur. Well, this is... Uh... This is the, something, a project that we're going to be working on for a long time. I mean, I'm not going to, I, I feel gratified <laughs> that I've seen one small part of it. I think uh, future generations will look back and think how exciting it must have been during the early days of the contact network. Um, but in order to get to a, a saner Earth civilization, a great deal of blood, sweat, and tears are going to have to be shed. And I've, I've, I've at least no blood, but plenty of sweat and tears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely have a long road ahead. Um, there is uh, some progress being made now, and you know, again, that's going to be reliant on how we react to it and what we do with that. So, I'm optimistic. <laughs> but um, that I think that's pretty good for today. I'm going to have to have you back on because again, we we can do an entire series with you, Dr. Burks. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on here, yeah. and. Um, We'll have you on again sometime soon. Thanks so much for letting me share. Absolutely. Take care.